All right, everyone, welcome back to the weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I'm your co-host, Mike Ippolito. I am joined, as always, by my effervescent co-host, Mr. Tyler Neville. What's going on, Tyler? Mike, my vociferous uh, partner Oh, in I'm getting an adjective. Look at that. <laughs> I uh, think I'm more vociferous. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm judging how good I've done a job of picking on an adjective by your facial expression. This was a good one. I can tell you're happy with this one. That makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so third day, I got tomorrow off. Well, you know, what can you be mad about? What can you be mad about? I know. All right. Well, at the end, we'll, we'll talk about what you're doing on your on your big day off because it's it's some exciting stuff. Um, but for now, let's let's get into it here. Uh, so big stories of the week. Obviously, there was the FOMC this week. There's been a lot of dissecting of the FOMC. So I think we're going to try to give uh, the audience here some interesting takes uh, that might not have been obvious kind of at, at first glance. Um, so there's the FOMC overview. Uh, MicroStrategy has unveiled a $1 billion stock offering. So this is the first time they're using equity financing to potentially acquiring Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff to get into there. And then finally, oil. Uh, you know, at the current time we're recording, which is Thursday morning, uh, oil is trading at a two and a half year high, which is just under $72 uh, on the WTI. So a lot of really interesting stuff to get into. Should we start with the FOMC? Let's hit it. Why not? Why not? All right. I like that attitude. Okay. So here, I'll just give like a, a, a brief overview here. But basically, uh, Federal Reserve officials sped up their expected pace of policy tightening uh, amid optimism about the labor market and heightened concerns for inflation. So overall, I guess the summary of this, uh, the FOMC is that it was like a little bit more hawkish than people expected. Nothing moved hugely in one direction or the other. Uh, but we have dispensed with the talking about talking about uh, and we are now actually looking at when does it make sense to start uh, tapering because it looks like the economy is kind of roaring back uh, online. Um, so I guess there are a couple like interesting things to talk about here. Uh, number one, uh, let's talk about the yield curve for a second uh, and what that has told us. So basically, there was a backing up of yields along the entire curve, but it didn't happen equally. So the biggest moves that you actually saw were the two-year and the five-year, and then relatively more muted action uh, kind of at the the later stage of the curve, so the 10-year and the 30-year the didn't really move that much. So you're kind of starting to see a flattening of the curve. What does that tell you? Yeah, I guess it's growth expectations are, are kind of shrinking and inflation expectations too, which, you know, to me, I think it's a temporary thing. I think longer mm. term, we're still in this secular shift from disinflation to inflation. But, you know, the market's telling you right now uh, look out for deflationary, disinflationary pressures. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the reaction of other assets um, indicated that same view, basically. So we were talking about before we actually recorded here that two interesting moves were actually in the dollar as measured by the Dixie uh, and also gold. So gold sold off um, like three percentage points or like 3% um, as yeah. of right now, uh, which is pretty interesting, right? Because theoretically, like, Yields, real yields are deeply negative. This should be an environment where gold is doing really well. So mm -hmm. what is that actually telling you? It's telling you that um, that uh, maybe real yields aren't actually that negative um, and probably the, the equation there that inflation is actually not as um, assured as, as the entire market seems to think, basically. So yeah, I, I think the reaction of those two assets tells you that we're actually not heading towards inflation anytime in the future and we're actually looking at a, at least for a little while, continuing disinflationary environment. What are your thoughts there? 
Yeah, I think that's proving right right now. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been wrong in the temporary, in the short term right on this, where the dollar's rising now. You see the Chinese yuan weakening, which is the two things that I kind of like gauge what inflation and deflation is. Is like yuan had a huge move today. It was, it's up like 1%, which is for a pegged currency. I mean, it, it weakened 1%, which for a pegged currency is pretty big. Uh, and the dollar's rising, you know, pretty consistently as well. What's fascinating though, is like, th this is divergent. The Fed raised their, you know, inflation expectations and uh, which you theoretically would say deeper uh, negative real rates, which would help gold. But gold is actually like, the most highly sensitive to, to that stuff. And it's probably predicting, right. you know, negative rates actually shrinking, going maybe positive in the future. I don't know, we'll see what happens. But uh, right now you're right. I think uh, disinflationary, deflationary pressures are there. Uh, and you also saw tech rally, you know, 1% today. So that, yeah, they tech does better in a you know, disinflationary, deflationary environment. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, yeah, that was an interesting divergence, right? You saw, um, I think all major equity indices in the US kind of shed some values, like between three quarters of a, a, a percent and, and half a percent, but overall NASDAQ did better than the Dow, mm -hmm. um, which I agree kind of tells you that, you know, tech tends to do better in a disinflationary, um, you know, low interest rate environment. So I guess that's kind of telling you that. Yeah. And one other interesting thing that not many people are paying attention to, I don't think is I'm looking at the risk parity ETF, which is our par, and it's only up two bips today. And it was down like, you know, percent yesterday, which basically means like risk parity hasn't bounced with the market. Uh, it's kind of fascinating because we saw correlations between bonds and stocks, 90 day correlations were at almost, you know, decade highs. And that, right. so that shows me there's really no, uh, there's no protection in the marketplace from like assets. When you, when stocks sell off, bonds are selling off too. When stocks rally, bonds are rallying and risk parity didn't really bounce right here. And, and that's kind of like a red flag where it's like, if that keeps going lower, you could have a deleveraging dis deflationary type pocket. So that's something we should keep our eyes on going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, talk a little bit uh, about, I mean, you've, you, you wrote about this, um, I think yesterday in your newsletter, which is basically the lack of like a downside hedge in the market. And overall with like the correlation between uh, stocks and bonds, it also kind of means uh, there are heavy implications there for the 60-40 portfolio. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, this is 60-40 portfolio is similar to risk parity, except risk parity is like levered on the bond side. Uh, mm. So if you get, you know, a sell off in both of these assets, where the hell do you put your money? Gold's not working now. Uh, <laughs> you know, if they really do taper, then theoretically all this stuff should drop and you should have like a deflationary kind of credit event. We're not seeing that yet. Like this, we're, we're just off the highs, but it's interesting action to, to kind of keep your, your eye on. The other thing is, uh, oil is rising. We can talk about this later, but like oil in this whole like dollar rally and, you know, reset of like risk parity, if you will, oil's been rising consistently. So that's yeah. kind of an interesting divergence as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll get to oil later because I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on there. I guess the last thing to note about the FOMC and impacts on different assets is uh, what Bitcoin and, and cryptos are doing. Uh, there's a guy, he's a trader at uh, Alameda, Sam uh, Trabuco, Trabucho, I think I'm pronouncing his last mm-hmm. name right. But he had a great thread on basically like the connection in between uh, crypto and macro. And basically the, the takeaway was like generally those markets aren't super correlated, but when there's something really big going on in the equity markets, the bond markets, then crypto traders basically do have to sit up and pay attention. So like during March of 2020, the correlation went to one because it's like, okay, the S&P moved 20%. Yeah, guess what? That's going to impact what mm-hmm. we're doing. So basically, I think it's actually a helpful kind of heuristic. Like when there's something very big going on in capital markets, traditional financial markets, crypto traders will sit up and pay attention. Yesterday, definitely something that people, <laughs> that crypto traders are paying attention to. And Bitcoin sold off like seven, seven percent, six, seven percent, uh, basically going into the FOMC, right? So basically worries about tapering. And it's kind of just like sat where it was. Like everything else moved uh, after the FOMC, but Bitcoin didn't budge. It didn't recover that ground, really. I think it's trading about 39,000 now, but it's just kind of hovering around there. Uh, I, To be honest, I'm not 100% sure what to make of that. Um, if anything, I would say <laughs> the crypto markets are telling you something different than everyone else is telling you. Because if Bitcoin is super, super sensitive to moves in interest rates at this point. And what Bitcoin and crypto is telling you is that eh, we're actually not that concerned about tapering. And maybe that timeline is going to be longer than everyone else thinks, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. It didn't, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like didn't pay attention to what I'd, I'd expect with the move with gold, Bitcoin would have sold off a lot more, but it, it didn't. Yeah. Said, you know, that's pretty accurate. There was also an interesting thing I read, you know, shout out to that Omkar God Bole. I'm butchering his name. He's over at Coindesk. He writes the morning note. And Omkar. Oh, God. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, he wrote like the, the hodlers that hold for uh, six months or, or more in Bitcoin are actually accumulating um, Bitcoin again, where they, they weren't like selling. Yeah. So there's an underlying bid there for, for really strong holders that we should theoretically see keep going. So I'm, I'm watching that too. Yeah. Good shout out. Yeah. The, uh, the head of macro fidelity, a guy named Jurian uh, Timmerer, who's actually speaking at our conference in, in Bretton Woods in August, uh, he, he tweeted out publicly, he's like, this looks like the bottom for Bitcoin as well. So something interesting, uh, just to know, obviously nobody, nobody knows yeah. for sure, but um, something to point out. Um, okay, cool. So moving on to the next story. So MicroStrategy unveils a $1 billion stock offering. Uh, so this actually comes hours after disclosing that it completed a $500 million debt offering, uh, which was explicitly for the purpose of uh, purchasing more Bitcoin. Um, the publicly traded MicroStrategy signaled in an SEC filing that it may sell as much as $1 billion worth of stock over time. In terms of the use of proceeds, it's still, uh, there's more flexibility there. Um, they essentially, I mean, you can check out the, the, the filing yourself, but basically they said, hey, this might be for Bitcoin, this might be for something else. Um, so, you know, that, that brings the total uh, that MicroStrategy has in terms of Bitcoin up to 92000 uh, Bitcoin on its balance sheet, which at today's value, that's about $3.7 billion worth of Bitcoin. Not terrible. Um, I like going one step deeper here. You wrote this great note, uh, basically on what Saylor is doing. Uh, you called him a Picasso of financial engineering, taking advantage of different <laughs> parts of the capital stack uh, or the capital structure. Talk, talk to us a little bit about how, how do you interpret what Saylor is doing here? Yeah, I'm not like a corporate CEO, obviously, but 
or CFO. But this, to me, is probably the most underrated uh, move by a corporate uh, operator because he – it's like I called it financial jujitsu. He's using his – not only on the debt side, he's using unfunded pension demand for yield to, to issue high-yield debt to buy Bitcoin. But on the equity side, if you look at his top shareholders – Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, they're a passive holder base. So like if you dilute the equity pool, they're not going to sell because, you know, they're passive, right? They only sell if there's outflows. So when he's raising equity, he's diluting them and they're just like, okay, whatever. You're also 0.000001% of our entire, you know, portfolios. So who really cares? They probably don't even like realize when you issue a billion dollars worth of equity. And, And so... Even if you dig deeper into this, right? So what are you actually doing when you're raising high yield debt? And Greg Foss could probably put this way more eloquently. I'm going to give like my dumbed down version. But when you raise high yield debt, when credit spreads are this low, high yield credit spreads just hit 3.84%. That's how yield to worst on high yield is 3.84%, which after uh, inflation you're basically raising money at negative rates. And what you're doing when you take that money in as a corporation is you take that money in and if those credit spreads rise, it's like owning a put because the bonds you just issued fall in value. You have this cash that like you could theoretically buy the bonds back at a cheaper price. So you bought protection, like you bought protection by taking that cash in at really, really nice cost of capital. And then you went out and you bought a very cheap call option on on Bitcoin, which is high upside. So you've created, as a corporation, a long volatility position. You bought a put and a call, long vol position, so that when you're taking advantage of these massive centralized players. And this, this exact thing is what I mean from you're moving from a centralized world to a decentralized world. It is a microcosm of what that means as capital is congregated into these giant, giant aircraft carriers of capital. And Sailor is utilizing that at every direction. It's like if the ducks are quacking, they want to buy your shitty debt at really nice rates, he'll just keep selling it and he'll keep selling equity. And herein lies the most amazing thing. And you can get into your thesis um, on the equity side. But so he, after issuing the high yield debt, he went out and he issued equity, which dilutes Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street by what, 20%, dilutes their holdings so their earnings per share goes down. But they, they still won't sell. And what happens is the bondholders who own the, the credit, the capital structure just got diluted so the bonds rally and everyone that was long the bonds and short the stock now has to cover their stock. So the stock goes up. The stock went up after issuing a billion dollars of equity. I mean, this is like, yeah, yeah. you could write like a 90 page thesis on this if you're like a college corporate finance major, right? <laughs> and I'm... Yeah, I know you actually. Right? And hopefully this was digestible. But basically, what he's setting up is he's taking advantage of all the centralized players and making a an outrageous bet 
on the future of of Bitcoin as so he's either he he's either going to go down in history as like the dumbest guy if deflation hits and credit cre there's a credit crisis or he's just going to keep funneling this money into a new ecosystem and creating they're in creating yeah. the subpriming of Bitcoin and I think people are going to catch on and follow him yeah so I think when Sailor first came out and did this I think First of all, this came out of nowhere. I, no one, I'd never heard the name Michael Saylor before. I wasn't like, oh yeah, this guy's about to do something. I think it was widely misinterpreted. So Saylor comes out, buys $500 million or whatever he did worth of Bitcoin. Huge news, right? Uh, wow, he really nailed the timing. And everyone then went on this narrative of like, okay, what this means is that corporates should put Bitcoin on their balance sheet, which I do not, I think that was a broad misinterpretation of what he's actually doing. I think what Saylor is doing is a guy who is leveraging his assets to take advantages of what you're saying in market structure on the debt side, on the equity side, to amount what is essentially a speculative attack on the US dollar. So let's break all of this down, okay? There is, in, in corporate finance, there are two ways you can raise capital. There's debt financing, there's equity financing. He is taking advantage of market structure stuff on both sides of that. So let's talk about the debt. You got into it. I think that analogy, by the way, is freaking awesome. That it's essentially, it's a, it's a put call that he's buying. I would say the other thing that he's taking advantage of is an arbitrage, which is that there are these big ton, lots of capital tied up in bond funds that have a mandate that they can only invest in certain types of things, namely bonds. But a lot of the individual investors, there was capital that was tied up in those bond funds that actually wanted exposure to Bitcoin. He understood that and basically just sold that. Right, and, and it's giving these investors exposure to Bitcoin. So boom, he takes advantage of that, okay? Then move it to the equity side. Equity financing is more expensive than debt financing. So one, like, I don't know if he, I don't know how much credit to give him, like, it's genius. But one really interesting thing is that you you and I talked about this before we, we hopped on here. If in, in a world where there's an active shareholder base, they're looking at EPS, right? And all these traders know, right, when there's a big uh, dilution event, my EPS is going to go down, I'm going to sell. They also know all the other traders are going to do that. It's basically like a sure thing. The dilution event, boom, you sell. In a weird way, because so much money is tied up in passive, that's not going to happen anymore. And actually, it's so weird that they diluted themselves almost 20% stock pops. But in a weird way, that could actually be a benefit because MicroStrategy was a mature company. They were throwing off cash. The initial $500 million buy that they made was not through debt. It was actually just putting the dollars on their balance sheet mm -hmm. into Bitcoin. If you're a mature company, maybe you say to realize at the end of the day, I'm not going to be able to compete with these gigantic platforms, right? Really, the best return on capital that I can do with my money is to put it into Bitcoin because the return on Bitcoin is going to be higher than anything that I could do from like the operations of my company. So in a weird way, because of this market structure stuff, what's going on in equity, this massive shareholder base, he is actually accurately pricing what's going on. Like him diluting the equity of his company and putting it into Bitcoin is going to generate a higher return <laughs> on equity and capital. And it's actually pricing itself in the correct way. Yeah. You could say the markets, you know, completely, it, inefficient or it's perfectly efficient that that's i guess the future will tell us which one's correct um, the future will tell us which one is correct or maybe market structure there's always an arbitrary nature to it and some people just kind of figure it out and take advantage of it who knows but yeah. i think the 
the bigger story here is that everyone looked at Sailor and was like, see, companies should buy Bitcoin. And actually, I think Sailor had a more influential impact on like El Salvador and now Pan Pan Panama or Paraguay or whatever, mm -hmm. these companies moving in. Because what he's essentially doing is saying, these dollars that I have, these cash, the, the value of my company, the equity value of my company, which is predicated on future cash flows that are denominated in dollars, mm -hmm. not that valuable, not that valuable. What is valuable is Bitcoin. So I'm a guy with tremendous assets, right? He had like 65% of equity in, the, in this big company. He leveraged his debt, he leveraged his equity, and he basically said none of that is worth anything because it's all denominated in dollars, and he put it all into Bitcoin. It is a speculative attack on the US dollar. Yeah, <laughs> like, can, can I make- Pretty large way. Here's an analogy I also made briefly in, in a note this week, but it, I think it's really important to understand and tell me if I'm off base here, but we printed more dollars this year. I think it was like, than we had in like 40 years or something. It's like a massive, if you think about the America and the US dollar as a, a private uh, venture backed company, right? So yeah. You dilute your monetary base by say, you know, 20%, that's like doing a series A, right? And your right. equity as a founder goes down, your equity as a worker goes way, way down because like that pool of capital gets diluted. We're doing that, it's on a, a scale in America that is unprecedented. And no wonder why workers are like, I, I have no upside in my company anymore because you're getting diluted not only on your your US dollar, your, your currency is getting diluted on a massive scale, but then your equities are getting diluted on a massive scale. And and only yeah. capital, the capital owners, the ones that have equity have all the biggest equity, they kind of make up for it because they're still, even though they're getting diluted too, they're getting the, the growth rates, right? Right. But right. as a worker, you keep getting depleted and you're like, well, my valuation needs to go up like 4X for me to like really make money because like the inflation of it doesn't make sense. And so this is where it gets really fascinating is maybe Sailor is actually the most rational, efficient, like you said, because he's understanding that like my workers are getting increasingly diluted on, on a, how do they, how do I keep up with that if my business can't grow as much as the dilution of the capital base. And so he's making the most rational decision in the marketplace, although everyone else thinks he's crazy, right? Because if he can't make the returns like Google and Facebook and, and these massive, you know, centralized players, how does, how do you keep up? You need stores of value for your workers. And so he's actually like making a decision that's probably the best for his workers, even though it's not, you know, doing a massive capex and, and trying to grow it faster. It's like, he's, he's a mature company, like you said, and like, it's really hard to innovate and, and come up with a new technology. So he's putting it in the, the only place he knows. Yeah. So, you know what? I actually think, <laughs> have you seen that meme? Uh, you know, it's like the bell curve of intelligence and it's like on the one side, you got the 75 IQ guy. And then in the middle, you got the hundred IQ, like, struggling coming up with all these things. And then you got the genius on the right side, which is agrees with the guy. Yeah. 
I think we just gave the middle of the curve explanation here <laughs> because in reality, you know, you know, you'd get like a 75 IQ person, Bitcoin's going to go up. So I'm going to put all my money in it. Then you got us in the middle talking about, you know, arbitrages in different capital markets and yada, yada. And then you got sailor on the right side saying Bitcoin's going to go up. <laughs> I'm going to put all my money in it. It's really simple at the end of the day. They're diluting everything. Just go put it in something that doesn't have. Go put it. Yeah. Yano actually had an incredible tweet storm about cigarettes uh i saw that That i thought it was really really fascinating that you know if you have a depletion of cigarettes deflation happens right but go go read for yourself go read for yourself yeah he gets enough engagement on his account uh (laughs) yeah i mean i that's i kind of think at the end of the day yeah that's this is just a guy taking a you told me you gave me this great quote which is um it's like millionaires use data billionaires use astrology and I feel like that's what's going on here. Uh, but anyway, just fascinating to watch. I got to admit, fascinating to watch. And I think the narrative, I guess the, the actual point being, I think the narrative will shift around Sailor. I think if I had to throw out a prediction here, I, do, I think the corporates putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet thing, that was, that was all initiated by Sailor. I think that has been misunderstood. I think people are going to realize that that actually doesn't make any sense. And I think actually the narrative is going to this is going to accelerate the end game narrative of what's much more consequential is nation states and central banks uh, essentially reevaluating the the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency and seriously looking at Bitcoin as an alternative. Right. Um, I think, that, and honestly, like that makes a lot of sense to me, and I think that's much. I think that's what's going to happen here. Um, let's see. Okay, let's let's move on to our last story here. Um, so oil has hit a two and a half year high. So if you look at the WTI, oil is trading uh, as of now. It's just 11 o'clock on Thursday, just under $72. Yeah, two and a half year high from oil. Uh, today's price, it represents a greater than 300% recovery from the low of last year, although that's actually pretty hard to compute because technically at one point the price of oil was negative uh, if you're looking at WTI, um, which makes it really hard to, <laughs> to calculate a percent increase, even though that was only for like a day, but pretty wild. Um, I think there's a lot to break. There are a couple interesting angles with oil. Oil has a huge impact across the broader economy in general. Typically, higher oil prices actually, we were talking about this, it's hard to parse out when that leads to inflation and when's that, when that leads to economic slowdown. So maybe we can get into some of the nuance around that. Uh, and then I think it's worth paying attention. I think you called this out in a newsletter a little while ago, but the ESG mandate that's kind of sweeping the world of investing right now, is it's well-intentioned. But it might actually end up leading to this big spike in oil prices, uh, which could be really counterproductive for a recovery in the economy. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know where to start here, but I guess let's talk about like the impact of oil on on an economy in general. Um, I guess I would lead off by just saying one interesting t- statistic to note is that since 1970, uh, 100% of recessions in the U.S. has been preceded by a doubling of oil prices. That, that's so right. Yeah. Yeah. In the 12 months leading up. So that is certainly something. Oil has technically doubled in the last 12 mm-hmm. months. Although you could say it's, that was an aberration that it got as low as it did. If you look at the five-year chart of oil, it's kind of plodding along, um, you know, steadily increasing, but around 70 bucks per barrel. Talk to us a little bit like what, why is oil such an important input for the economy? What do higher oil prices typically mean? Well, there's two trains of thought, I guess, is at some point, Oil, oil signifies economic growth and the economy coming back online, right? And more consumers using goods, more travel, et cetera. 
at some point, I think we'll see it creep into like corporations' expenses. What's fascinating to me is like if you look at S and P uh, earnings per share estimates, there they went from you know uh, there's this chart where it shows earnings estimates at the start of every year for the past 10 years, they start up really high and then they kind of dip. So it's like expectations are high and then they kind of come down to reality. And now earnings expectations for like 22 and 23 are like kind of, you know, very steep. Um, and I'd imagine if oil keeps going, that will cause the earnings expectations come down as oil, the input for a lot of these companies you know, starts causing some damage. And that's the, the the capital versus labor type thing coming on again. Because if you have oil inflation, your margins should theoretically shrink um, at, at some of these companies, right? Not if you're an oil company or an energy company, but, you know, if you, if you never had to pay for like oil in the past, you know, five, six years, and all of a sudden that becomes an input cost, yeah, that that's that's a negative for the market. So I think inflation starts out as hey everything's great it's coming back online and then you hit this point of like you know watch out these input costs are rising i i wonder i'm really curious to listen to some of these earnings calls next quarter to see if if that starts popping up again right yeah i guess like on the two trains of thought idea on on oil like i could see and this seems to be the prevailing logic that you hear reported in the media, right? Which is that oil, like it or not, oil is still the, the unit of energy that powers America and, and general global mm -hmm. commerce, right? It is probably the single most important input cost. Um, and it's actually, I mean, that's the unit of energy that kind of anchors our monetary system as well. Like you can get into the petrodollar, all that kind of stuff. But generally the, the price of oil is like super, super important. So you could kind of see this one train of thought where it's like, okay, input costs are going up. That means that sellers of goods and services, because their input costs are going up, they're going to have to raise prices. Therefore, we're going to get inflation. Uh, you know, the other narrative or way to think about this is that as input costs rise, and actually usually as commodities rise in general, it's disinflationary because at some point, right, you exceed the point, almost like the band of acceptable cost increases. And it causes credit problems eventually. Yeah, it causes credit problems and it causes, you know, decreases in demand. At a certain point, like the price of things, it becomes unattractive to consumers, right? And they stop spending. So actually they're disinflationary, deflationary mm -hmm. impacts of rising prices. So it's hard to shake out. And like one thing we've talked about is there's more nuance to it than rising price, like rising input costs equal higher. It's not so neat and clean there because sometimes you can pass off costs to consumers. Sometimes you can't. In reality, the value chains of, of raw material, like turning a raw material into a finished good and selling it to a consumer are super, super complicated. There are many different players involved there. All of them are hedging risks across the value chain. Like there's a really interesting article about basically European airlines are in, in the shit because uh, they lost a lot of money mm -hmm. incorrectly hedging the price of oil. Uh, and then they basically uh, took their hedges down from 90% to 60% right at a time yeah. when oil is like doubled. So that'll be interesting. Look at, look at Air, European airline, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, uh, quarterly earnings, but, um, it's more complicated than just people make it out, uh, which is just that increased input costs equal higher consumer prices at the end. That's not actually sometimes how it works. And sometimes companies would rather take huge losses over periods of time than 
change their pricing at the end of the day. Yeah. What, what's fascinating with oil rising here is that you really haven't gotten any credit stress yet. So there's not, it's not becoming that big, you know, input just yet. Um, it, it, what also is, we'll, we'll see is like if that fiscal push and more government spending happens on the fiscal side of things and there is this ESG backdrop is the irony of this whole thing would be if this, this huge ESG push causes a huge spike in oil, which inevitably breaks, pops the credit bubble, you know, that, that would be, and then everyone will look back in five years and be like, Hey, great, great job with that ESG mandate. You know, you, you, you caused a global depression, <laughs> you know, and, and therein lies that how you have to tiptoe over these issues because, you know, Larry McDonald also brought this up, but like, if you look at coal too, coal, Peabody Energy is a coal company and it went from, let's see, from just April, it was at three bucks a share and now it's nine bucks a share. So it's tripled in, in a couple months. <laughs> and that's what happens when you have like the huge ESG mandates. You know, you have unintended consequences of, of, of things like this. So that's something that, that we should really watch. And I guess next earnings season, we'll, we'll see how much, uh, the oil impacts everybody. Yeah. I guess like for me learning more about this, it's, um, like the ESG stuff. I know maybe you're maybe even a little bit more cynical than I am about it. I think it's overall a very good impulse. And I think it's generally the direction that we need to move. When you really think about it at the end of the day, there are real problems with the transition to clean energy, but it kind of feels like the direction yeah. that we need to move eventually. Um, I do think it's worth pointing out that, I mean, there are problems, there could be problems with that transition in the short run. Um, I mean, it makes sense from a first principle standpoint, when you really think about it, energy is the input, right? Like that's, that's what drives economic growth and, and outputs and all that kind of stuff. And when you're doing a transition from one source of energy to a more expensive source of energy, that's newer and we'll figure it out, but there are going to be big hiccups. And I think, um, yeah, the ESG mandate, I mean, we talked about this on, I think the last roundup, but basically Larry Fink being the de facto us energies are, <laughs> I mean, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm with you. I'm not against it by any means. I think it's a great thing and you're probably going to have these problems, uh, regardless. What, what I find fascinating is the pure amount when something becomes like an investment narrative is like, all this money goes into like all these ESG companies. And then you see like these sociopaths be like, oh yeah, I have an EV car company, Lordstown Motors. And then it just goes from like a billions of dollar company. And then they say all of a sudden, hey, uh, by the way, uh, no one's bought our cars yet because there's no real orders in the book. And you have all this back, you know, nonsense. And it's just kind of a, it's, you get what Josh Wolf says is like, 90% of the companies are, are fake and 10% of the real innovators, but money gets thrown at, at all of them and you get the crazy people that just want to see the free money and they're waving it. So that's where I have the real problem is like the, the narcissist sociopaths that take the free money without any real uh, chance of making it happen. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Investing is just hard. And one of the, there are like no clear, like easy, definable rules, right? That hold over long periods of time. And 
One of the interesting things watching crypto develop, right, is that, and this happened in the dot-com bubble as well, is that the initial rush of capital happens and some of the first people to take advantage of that, the hype, are scammers. They are. Yeah. Like, that's what happened. But hidden and buried within those scammers are, like, real people doing really interesting things and are very cool. And people people don't tend to think in terms of, uh, like, probability distributions, right? In your mind, people go, this is scammers or this is the future. But what if the answer was, like, slightly different than that? And it was, like, 90% of these are scammers, but 10% of these are the real deal, right? And that's just a harder thing for you to frame. It's harder for you to frame your action there. Because if you're like, okay, these are scammers, boom, I just ignore it. This is this is fake news. Uh, but if it's like, this is real, then I go all in. But in reality, it's it's a harder problem to say maybe 90 or 95% are scammers, but like 5% of the real deal. What's your, what's your plan of action there? It's not as easy to determine. Um, and yeah, I feel like we're kind of watching that right now. And like, it's probably playing out in green energy as well. It's like someone, you know, people realize there's a huge push to make investment there. Some scammers, not calling anyone out, but like clearly there are people that are taking advantage of that. Uh, and some of them will be bad and some of them will be good. And that's why investing isn't easy uh, because you got to ferret out what's legitimate, who are the good actors from the maybe not so good ones. Yeah, and I guess that's what the top tier VCs do so well is they, it's kind of like uh, uh, human capital congregates and you always get like really great VCs with really great entrepreneurs because they kind of get the, they get the future. They get what they're trying to build and, you know, they want to partner with the best, you know, VCs that, that can provide the capital they need. Um, so it kind of puts you as like a, a regular investor like you, you can't you can't get any of those deals it's really hard <laughs> but it is fascinating watching what those guys do it's really fascinating and Dreepen horowitz just i think he raised like another 10 million dollars for this company called goldfinch that does like DeFi loans and mm. uh, uh i just thought that was interesting with on the back of um uh block new five billion dollar capital raise or at a $5 billion valuation. Yeah. Well, so I I did see Goldfinch too. It's funny. I was literally just talking about this. Are they doing, um, I mean, the, the big the big uh, thing that needs, still needs to get solved in DeFi is that all the loans are over collateralized. Uh, so basically, are they working on sort of almost like a credit system for DeFi? Like something like, um, you know, like a credit score for DeFi and therefore you could do like unsecured lending, stuff like that. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure, but I just see Andreessen going into it, and I'm like, okay, this, let's watch this. Yeah. You know what is interesting, though, about crypto is that, uh, like, if you look at very sophisticated investors, actually, like, um, I think it's Defiance Capital, um, that, that guy Arthur, uh, you know, he has done phenomenally well, essentially turned a very small amount of money into, uh, you know, nine-figure fund uh, over there. And most of that was actually done, not in the quote unquote primary, but just buying up DeFi assets uh, that were publicly available for anyone uh, and then holding it for a long period of time. Uh, like pretty crazy. Like theoretically, anyone could have done that. And when you look at a lot of these protocols that are available to anyone, it has the same, it's a startup. It has the same risk profile of a startup. So kind of a cool leveling of the playing field a little bit there. For uh, sure. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. So. 
All right, my man. Tell us about your uh, your Father's Day uh, splurge here. What's the plan? Oh, I'm doing a little uh, self, you know, me time at a, a place called Miraval, which is like a little retreat getaway. Probably get a massage, you know, relax, sit by the pool, read a book. So actually, life is hard. I, I did an interview with Russell Clark, and he recommended this book uh, about FDR and like the the new mm. deal and like basically fdr i don't know if you knew this but he was thought of as like a socialist and yeah yeah and and you know what what he was insinuating is like we might be heading into you know one of these new times where it's like he sets up a lot of the stuff for, for the workers and maybe that's a similar type of backdrop we're in um in america right now so i'm looking forward to that i actually there's a there's a great uh podcast um i listen to a podcast on the new deal it's called uh it's like the bowery boys oh, something the bowery boys yeah. they do a, yeah they do like local history to new york so they focused on a lot of like the new york aspects of the new deal but there's a good overview of of that actually um i listened to it like a year ago or something yeah. now i can't remember but uh, yeah, yeah fast Dude, I, you're speaking about books. So I, I'm reading Dune. I actually, you know, we're doing this Bretton Woods conference. There's a book, The Battle of Bretton Woods. I tried to read it. I tried <laughs> to read it. And I'm like so into this stuff. I love the history. It's like, dude, this is like 500 pages of, you got to give the people what they want. You know, they, I'm really starting to learn. They teach you how to write incorrectly in school. They're like, build up to a point. Use a lot of vocab words to flex finally get to your point like 10 hours later it's like lead with the yeah. point you know lead with the point keep me engaged yeah. here i think they teach you how to do it all wrong in school so the good the good books do that well though they do no you're you're totally right yeah and now i'm reading dune and uh that i'm because i want to read it before the movie comes mm -hmm. out later this year uh people really like that book i don't know it's pretty good i'm like 200 yeah. pages in I don't know. I'm going to read a little bit. I'm going to play some golf. i got a buddy coming in. We're going to do a barbecue. Going to go play some Man. golf. What are you, 45? Uh, yeah. <laughs> in here I am. You told in me here. <laughs> All right, buddy. I'll see you same time next week. Take care.